O Father, give us great assurance of this, your promise, that we may stand forgiven at the cross of Christ, who bore our sins for us, that we might be made free from the bondage of sin and death. Father, in Jesus' name, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. We are redeemed. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to ask you to open to the book of Romans once again. Same passage we looked at last week in our ongoing series on the book of Romans. That remember, you asked for it. Well, some of you did. (laughs) Book of Romans, chapter 4. Oh, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verses uh, 1 through 9. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. And so the Apostle Paul writes to the great gathering of the saints in Rome of the first century, and these are his words, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into his grace, in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory, hope of the glory of God. And not only that, But we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved through wrath from him. O Father, we thank you, O Lord, for this, the written word. We ask that we might be True to it this morning, O Lord, and your Holy Spirit would attend us in the reading and proclamation of this, your Holy Word. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, some of the themes of this passage we dealt with last week, certainly the glorying and tribulation part, certainly uh, some of the justification um, we talked about last week and in the ensuing weeks, weeks before that, because chapter 4 was all full of those themes. All right, so that brings us here, and as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it is the glory of a preacher to be repetitive. Paul repeats, and he drives home these things. Peter said to uh, the children of the diaspora when he wrote to them, I write not so much to instruct you, but to remind you. In other words, I've told you these things over and over, but it's good for us to come again and uh, reorient ourselves under the teaching and the doctrines of the Word of God. And so Paul begins, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we delved deeply into this passage last week with regard to the assurance of our salvation, which is based on justification. Friends, the only reason we really have assurance in salvation is because we can look at the finished work of Christ, not of anything that we've contributed It's a legal arrangement. This peace with God that he talks about isn't just like a peace of mind. I think we tend to think of that in our culture. But what it is, it's a legal peace between two warring factions. It tends to be a peace treaty. And so if we were to outline the process, our chronology would begin with Christ dying for us on the cross. Now, to go all the way back and understand, because remember, the the apostle doesn't write in verses, and he doesn't write in chapters, all right? So when this was read in the Roman church, it would have probably been done in a a sitting. And then maybe Paul or or, uh, Priscilla, not Priscilla, but (laughs) Aquila would have, may have read this and done a series on it. We don't know, but some of the people of Rome may have done that, you know, and handed out the mimeograph copies to all the first century saints. But why did Christ have to die for us? That's a question that the Christian ought to be able to answer. Why did he die for us? Paul answers that in the very first chapter of the book of Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. The wrath of God is out there. It is upon the society of men. 
And that's our answer. Wrath is upon us. It's upon all of mankind. It's righteously poured out on us by a holy God who has been long-suffering with our race for centuries to no avail. Men heap sin upon sin until even our merciful God, our long-suffering God, gets fed up, gives them over to a depraved mind to do those things they would rather wallow in. Goes all the way back to Adam. Sin only multiplied and became more egregious after the fall. Just as in the days of Noah, we read, And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man. This is a constant theme throughout Scripture, that man is not deserving of God's blessing. He's deserving only of wrath. In the eyes of God, there was no other remedy but to erase humanity. Now, in a man-centered way, that seems very harsh. But the Bible gives us God's view. The Bible gives us, for lack of a better term, a cosmic view. Well, a a divine view of the sin of man. He's looking down on it. And so we read this. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intent of the thought of his heart, only evil. And that's all God saw in man. And so mankind had to deal with the wrath of God that came upon them. And he had to deal with it by himself at that time. There was no Savior coming in that period. God singled out Noah as one righteous man who could be trusted with the be- beginning the whole thing over again. Friends, it's a mathematical reality that the only way to diminish sin is to diminish man. The only way to restrict evil is to restrict man's opportunities to commit evil. That's what we do with our children. right? We don't let them go places where we know they'll sin. I always said when my boys were small, I noticed that as long as I was with them, they didn't sin. Right? When I let them go out, that's when they'd sin. They'd come home and someone would say, hey, you know, your kid was over there doing this or that. And I said, I should have been there. <laughs> but we have God who's with us in the Holy Spirit all the time to convict us of these things. And yet we sin, and we'll talk about that as we uh, develop these themes. So the only way to restrict sin is to restrict man. And we see the same thing on the plains of Shinar. Remember the Tower of Babel. When man thought to unionize his efforts. And I mean nothing more than what that says. Man thought to unionize his efforts. One or a few men led the way to exalt themselves as God without the help of God. We'll do it ourselves. This is the quintessential act of rebellion against God. We'll storm the heavenlies, they thought. We will build our way there and assert our own human initiatives in God's domain in spite of his commandment to take dominion in the earth. Man forsook that endeavor of taking dominion in the earth and sought to put his handprint on heaven itself. Man stormed the gates of heaven to assert themselves and to shake a fist at the Almighty to declare that we are quite able of ourselves to be our own God and master. You know, some commentators believe it is a little bit of divine humor that as these men were building their way to heaven, that God had to come down and look at their little tower and see that they were rebelling against him. They had no hope of ever reaching God in some physical structure. And so once again, the Lord God had to restrict men in order to diminish their success in bringing about their perverse and ungodly attentions. I'll point out to you an important axiom here with regard to human potential. Friends, the glory of man is really nothing compared to the glory of God. But in the earth, the glory of man has great potential. And so even God said this, the Lord said, indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and that is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Now this is the globalist belief of thinkers from that day to this day, that if we all got together and all got our, um, 
put all of our initiatives together, we could actually create something divine and lasting. But it's not in our nature to do that. As long as we're rejecting God, we'll never accomplish anything for God, obviously. So the Lord attests that there's great potential in organized human effort. He recognizes it. The possibilities are, are powerful, and they're, and they're all-encompassing. And so this time, instead of washing the earth clean of sin, the, i.e. sinners, friends, you can't get rid of sin without getting rid of the sinners, you know? Um, we, love, we love to say God loves the sinner and hates the sin, but in the end, the one who God wrath comes upon is the sinner. And so God confused language. Like I say, you, you can either wash away the sinners, like he did the first time, or you can restrict the sinners, and they'll sin less. But there's no possibility that they're going to become like God. And so he restricted the ability of man to organize and globalize. His next move, of course, he established distinct nations. This whole concept of nations is biblical. Abraham would become the father of many nations. Rebekah had... The Bible says had two nations in her womb, right? And so these concepts, these themes, go all the way back to the beginning. And we see this kind of effort today. I've called your attention to it many times. It's the assertion of the glory of man. As I've told you also many times, the way to study the glory of man is to, is to study his ruins, what we know about the great and glorious civilizations of old, we dig through the sands of time literally to find them. And most of them thought they were eternal. The faded, finite glory of our race can never outshine the true glory of God. And so as long as we take that route to glory, God's wrath will always be upon us. And the attempt to make it so becomes an abominable evil. When man is not following the directives of the one and only holy God of the universe, he's inevitably following after another Lord and Master. Jesus made that point when he said, no servant can serve two masters. You know, that's really the crux of the application of our theology. Which master do we serve? Either he'll hate the one and love the other, Jesus said, or he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. So we see the outworking of this godless philosophy in society today. We see it in our national lives. Certainly we see it in our political lives. Every instinct in man is to eradicate from society any notion that we are only governed truly and rightly when we're governed from above. And that always leads to the exaltation of human effort. Friends, we idolize the human spirit. And we diminish the working of the Spirit of God. We even deny and profane the Spirit. And the first impulse of those who would throw off godly rule is to throw off godly rules. You know, the ungodly know where godly rules come from. That's why they're uh, focusing on protesting churches in our day. They're throwing off godly rules. And what's the result in human terms of rejecting God? Paul writes of it, again in Romans 1, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. They became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Friends, I hope I'm not alone in seeing that we live in a Romans 1 world today. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Notice it's singular, the truth and the lie. And so we came back to the question of why the Savior died. The answer is that there was no other way to preserve the race of man but to exact a commensurate punishment upon him. The justice, the awful justice of God, we used to call it. Awful meant we were in awe of it in those days. There were two divine obstacles, though, if we can call them obstacles in God's sight, but there were two considerations in God's sight. One, he didn't want to wipe out man. He made man in his image for a purpose. 
He had an eternal purpose for man. He had to find a way to preserve him in the earth. Our God is loving towards the creatures he's created. He had no desire to erase them again from the face of the globe as he did in ages past. And another obstacle, again, if we can call it that, he's a holy God with a holy and eternal purpose for man. He doesn't have a plan B. I know there are whole schools of theology that think God has to come up with a plan B and a plan C. Every time men fail, he's got to do something else. It was really always the same plan. How do I redeem man? The blood of the offending party must be offered up. Friends, that's what a covenant is. Due to the immeasurable love of God for his creation, he decided in his mercy that he would take the punishment for them. Now, I know we're familiar with these concepts, but Paul is reiterating them to a first century church um, so that they can come to a proper understanding of all these things. He would provide a, God would provide a substitute to stand in the place of guilty humanity and to take the penalty for their transgressions against the covenant and the God of the covenant. And so prophesying the future to come, the prophet foresees the coming Christ, and he writes these words. And I want you to pay particularly close attention to the wording here. And so Isaiah writes, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. I preached this once a long time ago in another church. And someone said to me afterwards, Be careful what you say, because God did not kill Jesus. Our sin killed Jesus. Friends, the fact is, and Paul will say again in Romans 8, it was God who did not spare his own son. God killed his own son for our sakes. He was smitten by God, not smitten by sin. Sin has no power over God. It offends him, but he has no, it has no power over him. Jesus was smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. And he has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Now, why do I stress that today? Because our subject is justification. In fact, it's one step further. Assurance of justification. Friends, God did this work. We can be assured of it. We can be assured that it's a lasting work. And so long as we get out of our works mentality and recognize that God did this, we are in that covenant of peace of which the apostle spoke. And so there's two things here that I hope you'll find utterly amazing by this exchange. First, it's amazing that the God of all existence chose to ameliorate the sin of man by taking the punishment for their sins upon himself. I hope that still makes you wonder and praise. And secondly, he chose to reveal it so completely to one of his prophets 750 years before it happened. And so clearly, you, do you know Isaiah as a book has been rejected because it reads like a New Testament book? No one believed he could see that clearly. He was like the Nostradamus of the Old Testament to the unbeliever. And this becomes the main point of, of justification, friends. It is entirely a work of God. God designed the plan. He carried out the plan. Wrath is upon mankind for his evil and the prevalence of continual sin, and God demands payment for sin. God planned for that payment to take place in the course of time, and then he paid the price with the life of Christ. It's almost as if the judge throws down the gavel, pronounces you guilty, gives you a fine, and then comes down and pulls out his wallet and pays the fine. You're just as free from paying the fine if the judge pays it as if you paid it yourself. And that's the main point. Of justification, But what I'd like us to keep in mind is that it's a peace treaty between two antagonists, God and man. And so the two 
who were formerly at war are now in a state of peace. God removed the enmity. He justified man in his sight by personally paying for the sins. And so this justification provided peace. It is this justification that assuages wrath. Because he's holy and just, he had to remove he had to remove the debt by having it paid by someone. And he chose himself. Now, the deniers of this process generally deny it because they deny it right from the start. They deny that the wrath of God is upon man. You know, that's the, that's the problem with man-centered views of God, man-centered theology, is that we see ourselves as the little darlings of the universe. They say God is love. Well, of course God is love. We labored last week over the importance of context, though. God is love, but he's other things as well. And deniers of God willingly forget that the God of love is also a just God. He's also a holy God. He's also wrathful and vengeful and sin-hating. And because men do not like this concept, they deny the true God and vie for the little, loving, lily-white concept of God. We think we've got to clean up God's image. Their God does not make demands. He doesn't require repentance. He doesn't even really require worship. Indeed, he and they know that he's not worthy of worship. Friends, if you created the God, he should worship you. He's not a God who hands out punishments, friends. He's, he hands out participation trophies. Their God, in fact, does not exist. They are their own God, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. Now I'm going to jump to verse 9 here, where Paul writes, much more than, in other words, there's more benefits than just peace. Having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. And so you see, the first thing to recognize in our quest to understand the place before God is to understand that there are two parties present. There's the offending party and there's the offended party. And they are at odds with one another. And only after the offense is removed can peace prevail between them. So God removed the offense and peace prevailed. You may remember what the angels sang in the Christmas story. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth and to, uh, goodwill toward men. Now one of the old authorized versions said goodwill among men. They got it totally wrong, friends. It's not about... This isn't a little goodwill sermon, be nice to your brother. We should do those things, but that's not what's the context there. This is about the antagonism between God and man, which the Savior coming would assuage. Goodwill toward men. Having been justified by faith, Paul wrote, we have peace with God. So justification is the removal of wrath, but it requires faith to remove the fear of wrath. It's faith that assures us of our new standing before God. The peace treaty has been made, friends. It was signed in blood, and the wall of separation that man erected, God tore down. Justification is entirely a work of God, as we've said, and faith is the spiritual act of appropriating the benefits of that peace. So we're at peace. God made the peace. But how do we enjoy the peace? We have to have faith. We have to know this doctrine and understands its precepts. And so what's the character of this faith of which the apostle speaks? Well, I searched my mind for an illustration and um, see how this works for you. You may know that after World War II had ended, the armistice was signed, right? But there were little islands in the South Pacific where the news never got sent. Did you know about this? And there were people hiding out in caves, you know, waiting for the Japanese to come ashore, and they were, thought they were at war. This went on with some of these people, to my understanding, for decades. People are shaking their heads, so apparently I'm not all that far afield here. And so the few inhabitants were found, when they were finally found, were found fearful and hiding many months, even several years later. They did not receive the news of the prevailing peace. And so when it was finally brought to them, they didn't believe it. They couldn't believe it. They had lived their whole lives in a state of war. They didn't know it could have come to an end. 
Their whole lives were built upon war and a fear of war and only faith in the message. The message was told to them, but they weren't free until they believed the message. And when they believed the message, it took the fear out of their lives and put them on a path to a renewed way of life. Through that belief, we have access through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to hear the gospel. And the gospel is this. You are justified before God. The payment has been made. Verse 2. Through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now I hope we know that standing and rejoicing is a sure sign of assurance of salvation. We don't generally rejoice um, that there's wrath upon us. We rejoice when we know the wrath has been lifted. Faith, which is belief in God's justifying actions through his son. In other words, God did this thing. He paid for your sin, but you have to believe it to be free of it. You have to believe it to have assurance and to stand and rejoice. And it's that faith that provides access into the grace of God. And so the apostle says that we may stand and rejoice. The gospel's the announcement. Faith is the power to believe it. And so it is this faith that gives us eyes to see the finished work of Christ in our behalf. We're not, we don't want to remain the guys on the island that didn't get the news. And we don't want to be the few of them that got the news and didn't believe it. Ever. We're at peace. And so the first aspect of saving faith is enlightenment of mind. You know, God gave us minds. They are good things, and I have always been a believer that faith increases mental acuity, doesn't diminish it, as your detractors would love for you to believe, that you have these quaint little beliefs and fantastic stories and miraculous things that could not possibly exist. No, faith gives you acute mental acuity in an increased proportion, not diminished. And so the first af- aspect of saving faith would be an enlightenment of mind. You have to understand it in your mind. We're given the good news in which we stand and rejoice. We're blessed to see the logic of the process. There's a definite logic to this process, isn't there? Once you understand what God's concerns are and what man's condition is, once you understand those things, it's a very logical process. Someone had to pay, either you or me. You know, I always say, if it, that's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness has a cost. You know, if you come on Thursday night to my house for Bible study and you break a lamp, which happened once, right? Um, I didn't care about the lamp. But a kid came on, we bro- broke the lamp, and I forgave him. And then I bought a new lamp. It cost me something, right? Someone had to pay the cost. Oh, we live in the dark. Actually, we do have more than one lamp, but I was just putting that out there. We could not as Who said, I'm sorry? Who broke the lamp? <laughs> I know who broke it. It was a kid a long time ago. Uh, we could not assuage the wrath of God by ourselves, but he assuaged it apart from us. I think we're the only people, Christians, that use the word assuage. I don't hear anyone else using assuage. I don't see senators on the floor of Congress going, um, I would like your, uh, your arguments to assuage my disbelief. Nobody, nobody uses it. That's, that really is one of our words, I think. It's like propitiation. You don't hear that being said a lot. You know, you go to the store, to Home Depot, and, and you charge up something. He does go, I want you to propitiate for, this, uh, for these, uh, this mortar that you're buying. No, these are, like, these are our words, right? Christian words. We appropriate them. Um, in fact, if you went to Home Depot and said, I want to propitiate for, uh, for all these goods I've got here, they'd say, what? Faith makes us recognize that we can no longer be punished for the sins that the substitute was punished for. It's really very logical. And that's why your mind can be at ease and you can trust, as Abraham trusted, that this exchange occurred. And it's the same faith. Remember it said it was given to him and to us? And we'll get to that as well. But friends, there are some tests of genuine faith that I think uh, might be useful for us. The first test is, it's this enlightenment of mind that's the first test of genuine faith. And so the fear of God and impending wrath is removed from our consciousness, from the consciousness of the man of faith, because God did the work, and so it's done. Remember, Abraham believed that God had the power, the ability to carry out what he had promised. That's part of the faith. 
There's nothing left for us to do but revel in the abounding peace that prevails between the sinner and his sacrificial God. A second aspect of genuine saving faith is the ability to answer your own accusing conscience. We love to accuse ourselves, to take ourselves down sometimes. Faith doesn't necessarily eradicate all doubt automatically, friends. I want you to know that. Doubts are normal and natural for us to have. But because of the enlightenment of our minds that God did the work, we don't have to fear that the work didn't get done because there's something we left undone. It was done in our behalf. We didn't do it. So faith doesn't eradicate all doubt. You might remember when the Lord healed a demon-possessed child, the father said to him, "Um, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. They existed together. And so fears and doubts may yet prevail in the man of genuine faith, and they, they must be answered for assurance to intercede. In other words, for you to, for you to have the benefit of assurance, you have to un- go back and, and your mind is now trained to talk you out of your doubt. The action of faith leads to the third test, which is humility. The true saint cannot see how the love of Christ be- could be so great toward a person such as him. You know, go back to the scriptures. Every time someone met with God, they fell to their knees once they saw the glory of God. Remember Isaiah? He fell down. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Boy, could we say that. And so this, we, we can't even believe that God would be so merciful to such a sinner as we are. But the evidence is all there. You don't know how he could love you, but you see the reality of the exchange. You see the power of justification and how it was wrought in your behalf. It's the legal fulfillment of the law of God. And what God has done, your doubtful conscience cannot undo. Friends, your doubts cannot do away. You might go. You, it's conceivable that you could go to heaven doubting. All right? But you shouldn't. If you come to a teaching church, at least you shouldn't. If you have some spiritual disciplines and read the scriptures for yourselves, you shouldn't go to your grave with doubts. You should go to your grave fearless of the death, which is another sign of genuine faith. And so again, your enlightened mind comes to your rescue and commends you to the simple economic principle of redemption. Remember, redemption's an economic exchange. It's an economic word, and we know that when we go to the redemption center and we give our bottles back to the guy who owns them, and he pays for them. Crude, but it works. Your sin's been paid for because you were loved. Not for anything good in yourself, but because it pleased the Lord to love you. A fourth test. Genuine faith covers over your natural fear of death. The word of God says of Christ that through death, he destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and he released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That bondage is gone. We're not in bondage. We're free men now. We have the benefits of free men. And free, and free men means freedom from fear. Fear of death. Um, a fifth point. Faith teaches us that even our sin cannot eradicate the effect of justification. This gets a little thorny, and I know you're very well taught, and you want me to go into sanctification here, but I'm dealing with justification for purposes of understanding the logic here, all right? But because you sin and it causes you to doubt doesn't mean you, that you're not justified. The man of faith who falls into sin and then questions his salvation may be subject to such fear all over again. The mind again comes to the rescue to remind you that such a belief is due to a works mentality in you. You see, you never really lost that works mentality, and now you're going backwards. You're seeing yourself sin, and you're forgetting that your sin was paid for by someone else. Your good works had no part in providing your justification, and they have no power to eradicate it due to evil works. And so your doubt reveals a residual works mentality in you. When this happens, the saint loses his peace, and in this sense, I do mean peace of mind, right? Because the real peace between you and God is justified by God. But he does not lose his salvation. 
Remember, the essential lesson of chapter 4 is, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him, who justified the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Your works had no power to save you, and they have no power to unsave you once saved. Lloyd-Jones offers a useful illustration here. I thought I would use it. Do you guys love Martin Lloyd-Jones yet, or is it just me? He said, faith is like the needle of a compass. Now, you know a compass always points to magnetic north, right? So you always, you got your compass. And we have our, he's, he's comparing this to our moral compass, all right? On the occasion, though, that another powerful magnet over here that's close and powerful, it can upset the, um, the needle on the compass. There's a place in in New Brunswick, Canada, called Magnetic Hill. Anybody know about Magnetic Hill? You know about Magnetic Hill? There's a powerful magnetic force there that supposedly makes your car go backwards and uphill. It was lost on me when I went to Magnetic Hill. This, this is your tourist attraction? <laughs> but uh, I hope the, stam- the stamps up in New Brunswick are probably watching. And Nick's going, he's talking down Canada again. <laughs> Nick's Dutch, by the way. But on the occasion that another powerful magnet gets closer to the, your moral compass, it can draw you away. That magnet is temptation. It's drawing you away. Magnetic north is still where it is. It's always been there. And your needle is programmed to point there. But for now, it's been interrupted by another force. All right? Temptation is that magnet. And our moral compass does get affected by it. Such magnetic temptations may redirect our paths for a season. And there may be temporal consequences for our having veered off course. Friends, decisions have consequences, right? But the needle will eventually find its true direction when the temptation is removed. You know, James wrote, resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. You have tools for resisting temptation, but temptations do come. Now, some have complained. And they've complained to me, and I've complained in the past, that these are danger- this is a dangerous doctrine. Are you giving people license to sin? Friends, people don't need a license to sin. They do without a license. But it's as if we're giving license to sin. Paul answers that objection also in this epistle. But for the moment, and I'll, we'll get to the license to sin thing later. Shall I sin that grace may abound? God forbid. It actually says certainly not, but I like the old version. But um, I just want you to know, All the doctrines we talk about in the Reformed faith are dangerous doctrines. (laughs) They can be misused. They can be badly taught and misapplied. We live a dangerous life, but I like it that way. (laughs) So all the doctrines are dangerous, but for the moment, I'll I'll, I'll warn you about that, and uh, that brings us to our final note for today. We talked about the tests of faith. There are some tests um, for false assurances. There are tests for assurances of faith and some things we ought to look at that might give us um, an understanding that our assurance is false. Friends, a false security is, is worse than no security at all because you've stopped seeking now. Um, Now remember, you can be a Christian without full assurance of justification, but education on the subject should give you assurance. Your mind, your born-again, newly created mind should be able to rescue you from your doubt. So you can be a Christian without full assurance, but you cannot be a Christian apart from faith and full justification. That's how you're justified. That's what this whole thing about the faith of Abraham, right? Believed God. And so justification has to do with believing in the power of God to carry out the promises of God. Remember what Abraham believed. Paul said, being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to, to perform. So first of all, you have to understand that if God wants you justified, you can certainly be justified. You know God's powerful enough to do it. You know that he, can, he has the ability to make his promise real in your life. That much you ought to be able to talk yourself into, right? And then he said, but it's not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. So the same thing that freed Abraham and gave him the peace with God gives us the peace with God. 
And so the first sign of a false faith is departure from the fellowship of saints. This is important, and, and I've talked about it with some of you. We don't, the evangelical churches today don't really have much of an ecclesiology, and what I mean is the study of the church. Friends, the church is an ancillary to Christianity. Without Christianity, I mean, without the church, there's no Christianity. We're not just all little, you know, disparate particles. We're the body of Christ. And we're supposed to represent the universal body in the local form. Right? The church is essential. It's not a necessary evil. And it's so derided, I think, but not with John. John said they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that might be made manifest that none of them were of us. It's important to be with a fellowship of saints somewhere. In this case, perhaps Ephesus, where it is thought that John became pastor late in his life. But I'll stress again that to truly love Jesus, you must love who Jesus loves. Remember the, the two rules. Number one, you have to believe what Jesus believes. Right? And you have to love who Jesus loves. And Jesus loves the church. You don't want to go before Christ at the last judgment and say, you know, I love you, Lord, but I really have a problem with those, those people that you saved. They're very hypocritical and argumentative, and I, uh, and, uh, I just don't want to be with them. It was, it was uh, too inconvenient for me. I don't think you want to say that to the head of the church, and the church is his beloved body. It's his bride. You know, I like you, Lord, but not so, not so happy with the wife. Yeah, I, I don't think you want to do that. Uh, no, you have to love who Jesus loves. Um, a second point, and I've stressed the fact that true faith begins in the intellect, friends. I stress the intellect a lot in my teaching, but I'll also stress that it must not remain a purely intellectual assessment. It has to go beyond that. Your soul is deeper than just your intellect. All right? We like to say that you must confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, certainly you have to confess with your mouth, right? But this sort of artificial false confession isn't a magical thing that, that gets you saved. That confession must not be taken for an incantation that does the work for you. In fact, that belief, which I feel is prevalent in evangelical societies today, is, um, is a great heresy. In fact, it has a name. Have you heard of Sandemanianism? I taught on it years ago. It goes back to 1720s in Scotland, where a man named, I think it was Robert Sandeman. Robert Sandeman. And he, um, he was a teacher in the church of the Puritan era, or just beyond the Puritan era, and he came out with the idea that believism was the same as faith. In other words, you didn't have to believe much about Jesus, all you had to do was believe he existed. It was sort of a naked intellectual assent. Friends, that isn't what faith is. Faith isn't, I believe, faith is something you'll stand on and stand in. Believism puts all the emphasis on faith and takes it off the saving object of our faith, which is Christ. Friends, in the final analysis, faith doesn't save us. It's given to us to give us access to grace. We just read it. It's Christ that saves. Now, I would say to my charismatic brethren in what we lovingly call the name it and claim it theologies that they put so much emphasis on faith that they take it off Christ. Faith has to have an object. The object is Christ. Friends, Christ saved you. Your faith gave you the knowledge that Christ saved you. You see the difference? It's Christ who does the saving. Faith in Christ is access to Christ and not the other way around. And so a naked intellectual assent which does not demand any heartfelt conviction is not faith at all. And if you could muster faith in a person by forcing them or tricking them into a simple utterance of basic truths, aha, I got you to say Jesus Christ is God, you're saved. And the man walks out just as unwashed as he ever was, only now he's not searching for Christ. He thinks he's all done. Because you told them, told them the wrong thing. 2 Timothy 3.5 speaks of this very thing where Paul wrote, such people have a form of godliness but deny its power. 
Now, Lloyd-Jones came up with this, and I thought about this a lot, but I think he's right on, as I usually come to that conclusion with my beloved intellectual mentor, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He writes, I believe that those who have a false assurance are those who are never troubled by doubts. They are in a mere psychological state of assurance. They tend to be content with themselves in all things and never troubled in the least by their own sins and lack of spiritual commitments. Do you know these people? (laughs) Um, I'm thinking of a particular... I remember a long time I was in an evangelical conference and the speaker spoke and he did the obligatory altar call and and, uh, uh, I was there, and I, I'm, forgetting if, I think, I, I'm forgetting if Karen was with me there. Uh, I, she probably was, and there was this gentleman who received. He wanted to, be, uh, he wanted to uh, you know, respond uh, to the saving message, and so he did. And then he started talking to us about his, his uh, severe addiction to drugs. And there was a girl between us, the man was speaking, and he might have been with her. This goes back a long way. And she was trying to help him through this, and she said something like this. She said, and she said it in this little sappy sort of voice, that um, you don't have to be high on drugs. Get high on Jesus. And I've got to tell you that, friends, I have a past. (laughs) I know a lot about drugs and addiction, all right? And let me just say this. I didn't learn it from a book. Um, I have never compared being high on cocaine with my Christian life. It's depraved to think, just be high on Jesus. Friends, that's not the gospel. You know what I mean? And so you've got, I, I was as fearful for her as I was for him. That's all you think of this? It gives you a little thrill or something, maybe when you sing the songs? So this, I I knew what Lloyd-Jones meant when he said this. They tend to be content with themselves in all things and not troubled by their own sin. I said the words. There are those who are never troubled by a convicting sermon. Friends, the word should convict. Now, a lot of that's on us preachers. The word should convict. It shouldn't be all niceties all the time, all right? Preaching never unsettles these people or causes them to introspect on their own sanctification, which ought to be progressing in them and not stagnating, right? Uh, Sanctification is a progressive process. We're supposed to be maturing in Christ, putting things off, right? Now, preaching, real gospel preaching, ought always contain an element of fear and trembling which translates into our personal lives. There's still a fear of God, because of his being and because of what he is and could have done to us and did to so many others. There's an awesome reverential fear of that deity. And by the way, these are cliche Christians. Now, you know my speech on cliches. Cliches give me a rash. I can't use them. My heart palpitates um, because I know I'm giving in. I'm, I'm, I'm becoming a bumper sticker Christian, and I don't want to do that. I want to simplify it down, but I don't want to borrow little trendy little things that people say. Yeah, remember the T-shirts? Yes, I don't know. I guess they're still around, but I remember seeing this T-shirt with the Lord, and the cross was on his back, and he's bleeding, and he's got the thorns, and he's doing a push-up. And one side said um, that, you know, he's... He's What? Yeah, God's gym. But um, the shirt said, this blood's for you. Now, to me, that's profane. Um, so I, as a Christian, I, I wouldn't do that. Pastor Ken never, never had bumper stickers, never did that stuff. Because you've got to live up to that at the red light when you're yelling at the guy who, you know, he was always, he was always worried about that, you know. I know some of you have a lot of bumper stickers. Praise God, you, you, you're doing the work. But um, no, not me. Uh, me, it's conversation. I love to say the thing I know will get them mad and they'll contend with me. I'm, I'm the most unwoke guy in a woke society. It's really, it's really hard. You know, when I go up and, and the, you know, when you go to a, buy something in a store and they say, oh, do you have an account with us? And you say, I always say I don't know because I don't, I don't know what she's doing. <laughs> so they say, what's your phone number? I give them the phone number and they go, Karen? 
And I say, and, and, and then they laugh, and I say, I identify as Karen. <laughs> and guess what? They laugh more. And I said, I've never caught anybody. No one ever oh, sir, I'm so sorry. Um, I should have realized that, it, you know, you can certainly identify as Karen if that's what you want to do. No one's ever said that. In other words, the message really didn't get out that, we, that gender's fluid. I don't think anyone really buys it. I don't know why it's there. It's the depraved mind. Professing to be wise, you became the ultimate fool. You know? Where was I? Oh, yeah. So Lloyd-Jones, <laughs> Lloyd-Jones writes this. Can you imagine the apostle speaking in that manner? Get high on Jesus. Um, with such glib cliches falling from his lips, he said it. I found that he doesn't like cliches either. I was so happy. And then he writes, his speeches, Paul the Apostle's speeches, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's Paul's preaching. So even though that we know there's no fear in love and perfect love casts out fear, there's always a residing recognition that our God is a holy fire from the loins up and the loins down. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the true believer is ever cognizant of the fearful aspect of God and that more fully orbed view of him reminds us continually of the impending wrath that we have escaped by his overwhelming sacrificial love for us. To experience the true peace of our justification is to be always amazed at exposure to the word of God. We should always come away introspective. Don't be the guy, and I know it, sometimes it's legitimate, but don't be the guy that's like, boy, I hope Joe heard that sermon. You know, you, you don't want to be, that sermon's for you. People have come up to me, and if you do this after the service, I'll tell you what my answer will now be, all right? If you come up and say, were you aiming that at me? I'm going to say, um, yes. Because <laughs> yeah. whether or not I was, somebody was. <laughs> Yes, that was all for you. Everyone else could have stayed home today. It could have been me and you. It's a fearful thing. We should always come away introspective, not extrospective, and I don't really even know if that's a word. But there's a carefulness in the true saint that Paul spoke of. Friends, thankfulness. Don't be monstrously unthankful. That's what Calvin said. He, he just saw this. Um, monstrous ingratitude, he called it. Friends, we ask God for a lot of things. We come with all our, our prayer lists and all this thing. But remember all the things you have. Remember that you, you didn't get the, 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 the parking space up front, but you had the ability to walk from the far one. <laughs> you know, some people can't do that. You know, he had your eyesight so you could drive him. I mean, we have so many things that we take for granted and not not. We are got to be the most thankful people on earth the Christian. So there's a carefulness in the true saint that Paul spoke of, and I'll close with this. He said, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want to affirm to you constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Good works can't save you, but you ought to maintain good works to please God. That ought to be your concern. Our Father, in Jesus' name, give us the fulfillment of of the understanding of these truths in our lives, O Lord, that we may walk by them. I ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would apply them to our hearts and we might be nourished by the milk of the word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.